Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And we got a request on Twitter recently asking if we were going to do any more Civil War episodes for the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. And the answer is yes. It is now yes. At the time, it was somewhere on the spectrum between maybe and probably. Yeah. And now it's yes. Yeah, we always want to um, fulfill those desires of our listeners, but it's not always feasible to get everybody's wishes granted in I, the short amount of time that we have. I think the real answer is is, is never feasible because we get <laughs> literally 10 suggestions for every one episode that we can record. So yeah, yeah, at least. That's a conservative guess. But the Civil War, very broad topic with lots and lots of things to choose from. So I chose one of my favorite, favorite themes, which is ladies dressing up as gentlemen to go fight. Yeah. I don't know why I love that so much, but I do. Well, it's fascinating on a number of levels. Yes. So today we're going to talk about Sarah Emma Edmonds. She was a Canadian woman who went to fight for the Union just after the start of the Civil War. And she served disguised as a man without discovery for almost two years. And according to her memoir, she wasn't just a nurse in the Army. She was also a spy. And we'll talk more about the memoir as we go on. Yes. We're going to, we're going to talk about some things that she, that she discusses in it. And then we'll talk about why maybe those things happened. <laughs> so, uh, Sarah was born, Sarah Emma Evelyn Edmondson in New Brunswick, Canada in December of 1841. As was often the case at the time, her father wanted a boy to help him in his farming work and he resented her for not being one. He didn't treat her very well when she was young, and when she was 16, she was also facing an arranged marriage that she really didn't want to have any part of. So around 1857, she left home, and at that time, she also dropped the son from her last name. And she worked for about a year in Moncton, New Brunswick. She was afraid that her father would find her, so she eventually fled to the United States. To make it easier and safer for her to travel by herself, she adopted a new identity, which was Franklin Thompson, and she started dressing as a man. And a note on the pronouns here. We are going to use she and her when talking about her, because based on all the information we have, Franklin Thompson is a disguise that she adopted and not an expression of her gender identity. It's also a little unclear whether she went by Sarah or Emma, so for the sake of simplicity, we're just going to call her Sarah. So, first of all, after um, leaving New Brunswick, Sarah went to Hartford, Connecticut, and she got work as a traveling Bible salesman, making her way to other cities, including Boston, Massachusetts, and Flint, Michigan. And uh, an interesting point of note, she actually used the middle name Flint as part of her male alias, and this could be why. In 1861, after the fall of Fort Sumter started the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln called for 75,000 volunteers to join the Union Army. At that point, Sarah was in Flint. So even though she wasn't born an American, Sarah still felt it was her duty to join the side of the Union. And she wanted to help out by being a nurse. She could have done this in the civilian world by working in hospitals uh, with recuperating soldiers, but she really felt like the role of battlefield nurse was more crucial and more needed. And it's possible that the excitement of it was also a draw for her. But that job, working in the field as a nurse, along with pretty much everything else in the military at the time, was reserved exclusively for men. 
So maintaining her Franklin Thompson disguise, she went to enlist. Recruitment offices were really busy at the time, and there was really not a lot of physical examination going on of the people who were going to join the Army. So she joined without anyone detecting that she was a woman. She joined the 2nd Michigan Infantry on April 25th of 1861, and she was ranked as a field nurse. She was in Company F, which was the Flint Union Grays, and this was the first three-year regiment in Michigan and the first Western regiment to arrive in Washington, D.C. When the 2nd Michigan arrived in Washington, she worked in temporary hospitals with soldiers who were either sick when they got to Washington or had gotten sick after they arrived or had been injured in some kind of mishap. Because of very hot weather and how many soldiers were arriving in Washington, the hospitals were actually really busy, and there weren't enough doctors to go around. Typhoid and heat-related illnesses were also really common, along with infections that got worse because of the heat. And to top all of that off, they were also having a problem with summer storms. Um, since most of these temporary hospitals were set up in tents and they didn't always have flooring, the ground could quickly flood during a thunderstorm. So things were really pretty tough and a little bit dicey for administering medical aid. The provisions that they had available were also poor. There was plenty to eat, but it was mostly things like hard bread and coffee that might be really good for a, a healthy young soldier but not the best choices for somebody who was sick or recuperating. So on the advice of the chaplain and his wife, who figure into her story at other times later, she started an initiative to ask for help for sick and wounded soldiers from the families and businesses in that area. And she helped bring in better provisions for the men who were recovering. So... On July 15th of 1861, Sarah's unit got their marching orders to go to Bull Run, which is also known as Manassas, and they departed two days later on the 17th. The Battle of First Manassas, also known as the Battle of First Bull Run, took place on July the 21st. Uh, In this battle, what the Union was hoping to do was gain control of a railroad junction that would give them easier access to the Confederate capital of Richmond. They were not successful. Uh, Sarah's regiment did not participate in the battle itself, but when the order came to withdraw, the Army's means of retreat was blocked by carriages of people who had traveled out from Washington to watch the fighting as spectators. So Sarah's regiment was crucial in helping to cover the Union's botched retreat. While her regiment was providing cover, what she was doing was helping with the wounded, as well as delivering water to the fighting soldiers. It was so hot that day that they were becoming dehydrated and their performance was weakening. And after the battle was over, Sarah actually stayed behind to tend the wounded who uh, had to be left behind because they couldn't travel. And as important as her nurse work was delivering water to all of these wounded troops. Once she was ready to leave, she had to evade the eye of Confederate soldiers and make her way back to Washington by herself. The Army remained in D.C. for quite a while after Manassas, and she continued to work in the hospital. She was caring for patients. She was securing food and provisions, uh, just as she had started to prior to the fighting. In March of 1862, she became a mail carrier for her regiment. And for the remainder of her service, she combined doing work as a nurse with various mail and courier duties, including acting as a postmaster. The 2nd Michigan Infantry uh, eventually joined the Peninsula Campaign, and this was part of the Union's attempt to capture the Confederate capital of Richmond by moving up the Virginia Peninsula rather than by going overland from D.C., 
This would allow the Union to get the support of the Union Navy as well as the Army. As part of the Peninsula Campaign, her regiment was part of the Siege of Yorktown, the Battle of Williamsburg, the Battle of Fair Oaks, uh, also known as Seven Pines, and the Seven Days Battles before Richmond, at which the Union was ultimately defeated and had to retreat. In all of these battles, she worked as a nurse and a stretcher bearer and helped carry wounded men off the field. In the Battle of Williamsburg, uh, all of that happened while a heavy rain was going on, and the fighting was also really fierce, and at one point she took up arms herself. Her regiment was involved in many other battles, uh, but the next most notable event in her own personal story was during the Battle of Second Manassas, also called Second Bull Run, which was on August 29th of 1862. She was acting as a courier during the battle, so she was relaying instructions from one part of the battlefield to another. And her horse was killed, so she had to ride a mule instead. This mule, as mules are known for being stubborn, threw her into a ditch, and she was badly injured. She hurt her leg and experienced internal hemorrhaging. It was not her first injury, but it was one that uh, continued to affect her throughout her life. And while she had become adept at treating her own wounds so that people wouldn't discover that she was a woman, this was one that, that would have taken some time for her to recover from. Now, her memoir references her being at Antietam, which is also known as the Battle of Sharpsburg, and burying a soldier who confessed while dying that she was also female. But this may have been an embellishment on Sarah's part, since two different sources don't actually list the 2nd Michigan as having been at Antietam. Or it's also possible that her regiment didn't participate in the action, but that she did participate in treating the wounded after the fact. Uh, And also Antietam took place just a couple of weeks after her injury at 2nd Manassas. So it may be a slightly romanticized version of what was actually taking place there. Right. I found lots of sources that that mentioned Antietam as one of the battles that she was in. But uh, they all seem to be referencing this one maybe questionable part of of her memoir. But regardless, she was definitely... Uh, recovered enough to return to battle in the Battle of Fredericksburg, which went from December 11th to 15th. And she was an orderly and relayed messages between headquarters and the front on horseback. Uh, Fredericksburg was followed by the failed Mud March, which was a Northern Virginia campaign that the Union undertook that went so badly that they had to abandon it after three days. Because the rain had completely obliterated the roads, right? Right. Everybody was getting bogged down in a quagmire, essentially. Not really um, the most ideal conditions. No, the war was not going really well for the Union at this point. So both Fredericksburg and the Mud March had gone pretty poorly. Uh, and the loss at Fredericksburg had brought huge casualty, t- casualty tolls with it. And the Mud March, as we said, was basically a fiasco. It just it did not go well at all. Uh, General Ambrose Burnside, who had been commanding the Army of the Potomac since November of 1862, was actually removed from command on January 25th. And at that point, General Joseph Hooker was put in command of the Army of the Potomac. At this point, Sarah wanted to leave the Army of the Potomac as well. So she put in for a transfer and was sent to the 9th Army Corps. After a few days of leave, she met up with them in Louisville, Kentucky. She doesn't really explicitly spell out why she wanted a transfer, but it seems kind of obvious from what was going on uh, in the war at that point. The last entry she made in her journal before she left is pretty telling. She wrote, The weather department is in perfect keeping with the war department. Its policy being to make as many changes as possible and every one worse than the last. 
May God bless the old Army of the Potomac and save it from total annihilation. So, in her memoir, which we have already suggested is pretty heavily embellished, Sarah also wrote some really interesting things about becoming a spy for the Union. There's no mention of her being a spy in her service record, but she allegedly donned a disguise and went behind enemy lines 11 different times. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it never happened, because they wouldn't necessarily have recorded spy work in somebody's service record. But at the same time, the the things that we're going to talk about next are a little vague in historical record. We don't have hard facts on everything. It's largely her recounting of it. Right. And exactly when this started is a little unclear, but it seems from her memoir to have been sometime during the siege of Yorktown and after a friend of hers, Lieutenant James Vesey, who she had known before the time. Ah. Exactly when this spy work began is a little unclear, but it seems from her memoir to have started sometime during the siege of Yorktown and after the death of a friend, Lieutenant James Vesey, who she had known from before she joined the army. And at about the same time, a spy who had been doing reconnaissance for the Union in Richmond was captured and shot by a Confederate firing squad. The chaplain, so it was the same chaplain who had recommended that she seek out new provisions for the soldiers in the hospitals in D.C. The chaplain heard about this, and when Sarah confided in him that she was becoming dissatisfied in her nursing work and wanted to avenge her friend, he told her about this this reconnaissance opportunity, and he borrowed some army manuals for her to use to prepare. And in her account, she says that she faced a lengthy interview and exam, which which included a phrenological exam of her skull to examine the parts associated with things like secretiveness and combativeness before she got the okay to become a spy. In her first account of espionage, she disguised herself as contraband, which was a former slave who had started to work with Union forces. She wore a wig and used silver nitrate to color her skin and went by the name of Cuff. On this on this mission, she gathered information from uh, the Richmond area while working on the fortifications there and while carrying water. Sarah also wrote of dressing as an Irish peddler, and this time the disguise was that of a woman named Bridget. And in this instance, she took shelter in an apparently abandoned house only to find a gravely injured Confederate soldier already staying there. Uh, He gave her a watch to deliver to a Major McKee at a nearby Confederate camp if she happened to pass by there. And she took advantage of this opportunity to gain entry to the camp and scout around for information. She also wrote of finding official documents in the pocket of a Confederate officer while disguised as a launderer, and she returned these to her commanding officer. Allegedly, her spying continued after she moved into the Ninth Army Corps. She uh, wrote in her memoir about doing some recon while dressed as a Confederate soldier and then shooting the Confederate commander that she had been reporting to in the face once she fell back in line with her Union troops. And just how much of this is real, as we said, is pretty unclear. We do know she enlisted and we know she served, but the spy stories just have not been substantiated apart from her own descriptions that are in her memoir. Her military service didn't last much longer after she joined the Ninth Corps. 
Not long after arriving in Kentucky, she developed malaria. She knew she'd be discovered if she got medical treatment in the regiment, and she asked for a furlough and was denied. Now, her account diverges from the historical account at this point. In her memoir, she wrote that she went to the surgeon to say she was no longer fit for duty and that he agreed and wrote her up a certificate of disability, and then she went back to Washington to recover. So it's a little different than what happened in the official record. Right. In the historical record, she uh, most other accounts say that sometime in the spring of 1863, she left her post, probably to seek treatment for malaria outside of the Army, and then Franklin Thompson, her alias, was marked as a deserter. She did recover well enough to return to service, but she couldn't actually do so because of the desertion charge. So instead, she found work in a hospital, this time as herself with no disguise, and she worked with returning soldiers until the end of the war. Her memoir was called Unsexed, or The Female Soldier. And then when it was reprinted, it was renamed Nurse and Spy in the Union Army. It's definitely embellished. It's a very romanticized account of her service. There's plenty of battle action and fighting and shooting, but there's also just a whole lot that's more about the emotional side of service and lots and lots of stuff about what the emotional state of the men was like, what life in camp was like. And then every time, it seems like every other page, there is someone handing her a locket or a ring or a note or a package to return home by a comrade who has fallen. And it's also worth noting that she donated all the proceeds from the sale of this book to help wounded soldiers. So even though it may be a romanticized account, it was ultimately beneficial. Uh, she at one point wrote of a friendship with a woman named Nellie in this, the story. And in this telling, Nellie's husband, who was a Confederate soldier, uh, as well as Nellie's other relatives, had been killed by Union soldiers and that when Sarah first uh, encounters Nellie and she asked her if she could buy provisions for the Union Army, Nellie actually drew a gun on her. But Sarah allegedly shot her through the hand and then captured her. But by the end of the book, they're um, pals, and Nellie has begun to work in a Union hospital. So it reads kind of like a subplot in a movie, uh, this relationship that, that she has with Nellie, and, and something that, if you think about it, maybe that could have happened. But it also seems a little far-fetched. So uh, as I was reading her memoir, I read it with a pretty big grain of salt. Yeah. Uh, We do know that in 1867, Sarah married Linus Seeley, who was a Canadian mechanic, and they had three children together. They moved around quite a bit before they eventually settled in Texas as their home. The 2nd Michigan Infantry held a reunion in 1876, and Sarah attended. And when people figured out who she was, they welcomed her into the fold. The people who had served with her, some of them also helped her fight the desertion charge that was on her record and obtain a pension, which she sought because of the injuries she had incurred at 2nd Manassas. They had continued to trouble her throughout her life. So eventually, Franklin Thompson was cleared of the desertion charges. Uh, that took place in 1884, and he was given an honorable discharge and then was awarded a pension of $12 a month. In 1897, Sarah was admitted to the Grand Army of the Republic, which was a Civil War veterans organization. She was the only woman to do so. And on September 5th of 1898, Sarah died of malaria in Laporte, Texas, which was where she was living with her family. She was 58 years old. Uh, She is actually buried in the Washington Cemetery in Houston, Texas. 
I love this story. It's really, uh, I don't want to say fun because there's so much sort of darkness about it, but there is just such a sense of adventure and uh, spiritedness about it that there is a fun element to it. Right. It's just, it's a, a wild ride. It is. Even and without her embellished version. <laughs> it is a wild ride, even without all of the things that you kind of go, this was Maybe. made for TV. Yeah. So she was not the only woman to serve in the Civil War, and I found a pretty wide range of estimates uh, from as few as 250 to more than 750 women who disguised their sex and went to serve in the Civil War. And it was feasible for women to pass as men, uh, thanks to the modesty and sanitary standards at the time. Uh, you know, soldiers slept in their clothes and sometimes would go for weeks without bathing, especially during uh, active wartime. Women could bind their chest, pat out their waist, and pretty easily pass for men. Uh, you know, the facial hair thing was not as much of an issue because at that time, a lot of really young boys were enlisting as well. And a lot of volunteers were coming from all walks of life and had to learn everything about being a soldier. So being a little bit lost in the world of the military was not unusual for anybody, uh, male or female. So if you couldn't fire a gun or do other tasks, it wasn't a red flag that you might be a woman. So we know that there are other women who uh, made it all the way through their service without being discovered. There are some whose sex was discovered only after the woman had been severely wounded or killed. But we don't have a lot of really documented historical examples. Here are a few, though. One was Loretta Velasquez, who wrote about serving in the Civil War as Lieutenant Harry Buford in her memoirs, which were published in 1876. Mary Stevens Jenkins enlisted in Pennsylvania and was wounded in battle, and she served for two years without anyone discovering her sex. She died in 1881. Mary Owens of Pennsylvania served for 18 months using the name John Evans. She was discovered to be a woman and was sent home after being wounded in the arm. Citronia Smith Hunt enlisted alongside her husband, who died of wounds. One of the other most famous examples is Albert D.J. Cashiers, who enlisted in 1862 and served until 1865 when his regiment was mustered out of the Federal Army. In 1913, while living in a soldier's home in Illinois, a surgeon discovered that he was female. He lived as a man for his entire adult life and died in an, in an insane asylum in 1914. There are affidavits on file in his record from people who served with him who said that they had no idea of his physical sex. So for its part, the army actually tried to deny the involvement of women in the war at least once. In 1901, Ida Tarbell, writing for the American magazine, wrote to the adjutant general to ask about how many women had served in the Civil War. And she got an answer that was just blatantly false. He said, quote, I have the honor to inform you that no official record has been found in the War Department showing specifically that any woman was ever enlisted in the military service of the United States as a member of any organization of the regular or volunteer army at any time during the period of the Civil War. It is possible, however, that there may have been a few instances of women having served as soldiers for a short time without their sex having been detected, but no record of such cases is known to exist in the official files. Contrary to that answer, the Army had compiled the records of the Union and Confederate armies at that point, and there were plenty of records on file of women soldiers and of discharge papers that were marked with sexual incompatibility. 
So when the war was going on and afterwards, women soldiers were known of and upon discovery often got quite a bit of attention in newspapers. Word would spread of something like that. But for a long time after the turn of the century, and even up until the 1980s or so, most writing about the Civil War actually omitted the women soldiers completely or branded them as freaks or deviants or prostitutes. And it really wasn't until the late 80s and early 90s that the stories of female Civil War soldiers started to be told in a more positive light and their service was actually recognized. So that is the story of Sarah Emma Edmonds. And if, uh, number one, you can read her whole memoir for free on the internet. If you would like to go read a very adventurous and probably heavily romanticized tale of a woman's uh, fight in the Civil War. If you would like to read some fiction, actual fiction, not probably fictionalized kind of truth. Uh, another book is Terry Pratchett's Monstrous Regiment, which tells the story of Polly, who joins the uh, the army after her brother goes missing in battle which I love because I love Terry Pratchett. And I love stories about the ladies who dress as gentlemen to go off to war and fight. Yeah, me too. And now I think you have some listener mail. I do. I have listener mail. It's from our Facebook message box, and it is from Sheena. And Sheena says, I just listened to the Cheese podcast and loved it. After all, who doesn't love cheese? Many people do love cheese, including Holly and me. Yes. Uh, She says, just a quick question and a comment. Question. You spoke mostly about European cheese origins, and I was wondering, is the cheese made in other parts of the world just an offshoot of the cheese invented in Europe? Or did you find any evidence of cheese being developed independently elsewhere? Just curious. I once thought that the bagpipes were pretty much just a Scottish thing, but was pretty interested to learn that bagpipe-type instruments can be found in nearly every region of the world. Perhaps an interesting podcast topic. Comment! And she links us to, the, to a video and says that she has absolutely no Dutch connections and therefore probably has no business pointing this out. I disagree with that point. If there's something that you would like to point out, please do it. Uh, however, when I heard you refer to the Netherlands as Holland several times during this podcast, this video, recently posted on Facebook by a Dutch friend of mine, immediately came to mind. I didn't fact check the source of this video, but found it both educational and quite entertaining, so I thought I'd pass it along. And the video is about the difference between Holland and the Netherlands. So I'll talk about that first. Okay. First of all, if we accidentally called uh, Holland, called the Netherlands Holland, we're sorry. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure at some point that we did. Having watched the video, it is entertaining and it is confusing to people who do not live there in much the same way as the nuances between the British Isles and the United Kingdom and Great Britain may be confusing to people who don't live there, which is another thing that people have written comments to us about before. So anytime we mess that up, we're sorry. We're, yeah. we're trying to get it right, but yeah. I we may get it wrong at some point. On the cheese question, we talked about that in the episode a little bit, and it was one of those things that I was like, I'm going to go double check to make sure this is right, because what we had talked about was that most of the cheese history sort of started in the Mediterranean and then branched out into what is now Europe. Uh, as people developed new methods for controlling the spoilage of milk, um, with an exception being in India, which had a long history of uh, using milk and to make butter and to, to use in cuisine, uh, and made paneer, which is pretty much the only cheese that is native to India. So I confirmed that that's pretty much correct. It was mostly 
what we think of as Western culture, who were farming lots and lots of animals to use for dairy purposes. And that just wasn't very prominent in a lot of cultures outside of the Western world. I did find that there are a few ethnic groups in China that make cheese. And they these are real outliers in the greater context of Chinese cuisine. Uh, they include the Bai people and Tibetans, uh, along with another a couple of other uh, Chinese ethnic groups. And all of these may have learned how to make cheese from the Bai. And in the paper that I read about it, uh, it was it was clearly so unusual that it's remarked on multiple times how unusual it is. Um, and it really just boils down to that there were not many cultures that were raising lots of animals that were both producing enough milk for people to drink while still providing milk for young uh, and would allow themselves to be milked. So it's sort of a cultural difference. Yeah. You have to be raising herds of milk-producing animals in order to make cheese. Uh, and that is why very much of the cheese history is uh, from a Western perspective. So I hope that clears that up. Yes. You looked as though you had something that you wanted to say. Truthfully, I was waxing rhapsodic in my head about cheese. <laughs> we did some we did some rhapsing waxodic about cheese in that episode too. Yes. Most people who have written to us about that episode enjoyed that. So oh, that makes me happy. If you would like to write to us about cheese or the Civil War or anything else, you may. We are at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff and on Twitter at mistinhistory. Our Tumblr is at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we are also on Pinterest. If you would like to learn a little bit more about today's podcast subject matter, you can go to our website, Type in the word Civil War and you will find a nation divided, the Civil War quiz. You can do that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Audible.